0: um we uh welcome this is your first time by the way welcome really great to have you here at redeem it this is going to be more of a heavy kind of morning as we think about the issues of sin and forgiveness uh, we don't always go this heavy um but it's true isn't it that actually the, the things of significance the things of importance are usually weightier and worthy of our study and our thought i'm going to pray and ask that the lord would help us as we think about these issues Heavenly Father, we do pray so much that by the end of our time this morning, we would be like that woman, someone who knows they have been forgiven much and so loves much. We pray for your help, your spirit. Open our eyes, convict our hearts of not only our sin, but also the truth of your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Oscar Wilde, um, in his story, the uh, picture of Dorian Gray, it's a very sinister kind of play. It's a very sinister story. Uh, And and in it, he examines human nature. And he kind of asks the question, what if you could do whatever you wanted and get away with it? Dorian Gray, I should say, is a man. Uh, Dorian, it's an odd name for a man, isn't it? But he's a man. Dorian Gray lives that life. He chases his desires, and he gets away with it. But there's a problem, and the problem is his conscience. Listen to this part from uh, the book. We read it beyond the screen. Now, shall I move to the other one? I'm going to move to the other one, sorry. You're probably hearing a bit of fizz and fuzz. Let's move to this one here. There we go. Is that better? Yeah, I think that's better. Brilliant. Um, is, get the words on the screen. Here we go. This is, uh, this is um, a description of how Dorian responds to his conscience. His soul certainly was sick to death. Innocent blood had been spilled. What could atone for that? Oh, for there was no atonement. But though forgiveness was impossible, forgetfulness was possible still. And he was determined to forget, to stamp the thing out to crush it as one would crush the adder that had stung one. Do you see? He's got away with murder, but he can't get away from his conscience. There is no forgiveness, he thinks, so he turns to the only other option, which is forgetfulness. Now, in some ways, I think we are a little bit like Dorian Gray. Not that we've done what he did, but we respond to guilt in a similar way. Rather than confront our moral failings and deal with the darkness in our hearts, we prefer to forget, to stamp it out. We we forget through distraction, don't we? Now, we we, we do all we can to avoid being alone with our thoughts. For example, this may be truer for those in their 20s and 30s and those in their 50s and 60s, but phones are constantly in our hands. Headphones are always in our ears Social media or Netflix is always on our screens. Why? I'm sure there's all sorts of reasons, but I suspect one of them is that we're afraid to be alone with our thoughts, what we might have to confront about ourselves. We distract ourselves. We forget through distraction. We, we also forget through denial. We assume that we're basically good. We, we think of excuses for the reasons why we act and say the things we do and say. We worry about our mental health, and so we are encouraged not to be too hard on ourselves, not to dwell on the negative, focus instead on the positive. We forget through denial. In the Apostles' Creed, a very early statement of Christian belief, there are many wonderful lines. We read it earlier on, didn't we? But there is also this wonderful line. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. But the heart-pounding wonder of that line only hits us if we appreciate and accept the utter sinfulness that lies within us. That's what we're going to do in our first point. This is where it's going to be quite heavy, quite hard, but we need to tackle some of these things. The horror of sin, the horror of sin. Now, like we said, in the soundtrack of our lives, we rarely hear about anything of the darkness that lies within our hearts and then overflows into our lives. We kind of skip on. When you hear that kind of song that you don't really like, you just skip on, don't you? We do that with those thoughts. We distract or we deny. But in the soundtrack of the Bible, sin is hugely prominent, it's right there in the beginning. In Genesis 3, it's the sin of Adam and Eve that turned the world of life and flourishing and potential into, the life of world, uh, into a world of death and chaos and pain. Or in Genesis 6, that first reading we had, it, it is the sin of humanity that means the Lord looks down on all he's made and he regrets creating us. Sin is there in the life of all the main characters, their lies, their abuse, their violence. And sin is there when Jesus walks the earth. There in those who arrest him, those who abandon him, those who torture and those who crucify him. In the soundtrack of the Bible, sin is never suppressed and it is never sugar-coated. Its significance and destructiveness and horror is given its proper place. It is sin that ruined the world. It is sin that put the Lord of life on the cross. So what is it? What is sin? Now loads of things you could say but we're going to just pick up three and if you've got the handout you'll see um, those three things and where we're going. First thing I want to say about sin is that it is rebellion. John says in 1 John 3 verse 4, and I think it will be on the screen, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact sin is lawlessness. See, the Lord who made us and the Lord who loves us is rightfully the God over our lives. He is our king. And when we sin, we break his commands. We rebel against his law and his rule. We can find God's law explicitly in the scriptures in the Bible. Jesus wonderfully sums it up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the Bible is full of commands that flow out of those two key commands. That is the law of God. And we can also find the law of God implicitly in our hearts. Christian or not, there is a sense in which we all know what is right and what is wrong. In the New Testament, Paul calls it the law written on our hearts. So sin is rebellion. We throw off God's rule on our lives, we ignore and we break his law. Second thing about sin, it's idolatry. Uh, listen to Jeremiah 2 verse 13, you'll be in your sheets and on the screen. The Lord says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. So here's here's another perspective on sin. It, It is about improper worship. Sin is when we fail to worship and love and honor the one true God. Instead we love and we worship and we honor something or someone else. Sin is idolatry. When in my heart I think there is someone or something more worthy of my hope and my trust and my devotion than the God who made me. There's lots of things, aren't there? Multiple things that could be idols for us. The common ones would be money and sex and power. But maybe, maybe in our generation, maybe in our time, that it's, it's freedom, self-autonomy, which is our biggest idol. We think freedom, to be whoever we want to be. Freedom to live life however we want to live it. Self-autonomy will bring true happiness and life and joy. And so we worship freedom. We worship self-autonomy, not God. Okay, two things. Sin is rebellion. Sin is idolatry. And before we get to the final way of thinking about sin, notice something about those first two. They're primarily about us and God and not about us and each other. In our human-centric view, perhaps another symptom of the sin in our hearts, in our human-centric view, we tend to think that the most terrible, the most damaging, the most heinous is what we do to other human beings. And again, the Bible shocks us. First and foremost, the greatest offense of our sin is towards God. It's not to say that there is no offense towards others, but the greatest is towards God. But of course, the horror of sin is also in how we treat others. And so the final way of thinking about sin is that it is corruption. Listen to Genesis 6, verse 5, that reading, first reading we had. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. It'll take a a while to unpack the the significance of all of that. But I want us to just spot one thing. The, The idea of corruption, there is something fundamentally wrong, something broken and bent right in the very core of our being. The human heart was only evil all the time our hearts are corrupt and that means what we desire what we want what we choose is also corrupted we have this propensity to desire the wrong thing we want the wrong things things that harm others and things that even harm ourselves Let me just think about it in a very simple way. What comes more easily for us and to us, and more naturally to us? Is it to tell the truth, even though it's going to cost us, or is it to lie? What comes easier? Is it to love the unlovely, or is it to blank them? What's easier? Is it to be selfless or to be selfish? Is it to praise God for his blessings and goodness, or to ignore him and pay no attention to him whatsoever? It's easier see there's something fundamentally wrong with our hearts we want and we love and we choose the wrong things that's quite a striking thing to say in our world isn't it because we tend to think the best of life is found in being authentic true to yourself listen to your deepest thoughts your heart your deepest desires and pursue what it is you hear be yourself You see, the Bible says it's possible. In fact, it's likely that if we do that, there is a danger that our authentic self will want and desire and love that which is ultimately opposed to God and opposed to others and opposed to human flourishing. And that corruption spreads. Genesis 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence God saw how corrupt the earth had become. Why? For all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. See, the corruption in our hearts, it spreads outwards and it corrupts what is around us. It corrupts our friendships and our families. And it corrupts our businesses and it corrupts our workplaces. And the corruption in our hearts, it flows out and it corrupts our cultural activities, our media, our arts, our cinema, our writers. It corrupts the corridors of power and it corrupts the church. The Lord looked out and saw that the earth was full of violence, corruption. Sin is corruption. It flows out of our hearts and into the world and it corrodes and it dehumanizes and it destroys whatever it touches. Now God, in his kindness, stops the impact of that sin being as bad as it could be. He he suppresses it in us, and in our world. He stops the full effects of our sin breaking out around us. But then sometimes we get a glimpse of its true horror, of what happens when the sin in our hearts is unfettered, unbound. The dehumanizing and destructive and corrosive effect I mean, you just need to pick up a history book, don't you? And you could think of all sorts of examples. Something that struck me just recently, though, one example of where some of the the natural and social restraints to sin have been removed is in the area of sexual liberty. In a new book, the secular writer, not a Christian, the secular writer Louise Perry looks back at the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Sexual revolution is about letting us pursue the desires of our hearts celebrated by many as this moment of great freedom and liberty but in her book louise perry charts the chaos and the tragedy of what that revolution has led to much of what she describes is incredibly hard to hear and it is upsetting she's not Saying in her book that, that there was no problem before the sexual revolution, of course there was, but the consequence of removing all barriers, biological and social, she, she puts it like this the consequence of submitting to just two rules, freedom and consent, has done terrible damage. One reviewer sums up the book like this, and you might see this on the screen The sexual revolution created a sexual culture full of anxiety alienation, ruthlessness, and disappointment. A pornified sexuality based on violence and vulgarity rather than on intimacy and dignity and rife with abuse. You'd have to read to to see all that she is talking about. It's a very hard read, though. But it gives us a glimpse of what unfettered, unbounded corruption and sin can do the horror of sin. It is rebellion. It is idolatry and it is corruption. It flows out of our hearts and into the world and damages and dehumanizes and corrodes whatever it hits. And I get why we might want to do what Dorian Gray did. Try and forget this uncomfortable truth. Try and distract ourselves so we never have to confront this darkness or deny that it's really there. But why? I love being a Christian is because there is a much better way of dealing with this. We can bring our sin before the Lord. Confess it. Admit it. And experience forgiveness for it. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Let me read it to you. The Lord says, come now. Let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. That is the promise of forgiveness. And that's where we're going in our second half. Uh, More light, hopefully, this second half. The wonder of forgiveness. Now, before we get to what forgiveness is, we need to see why forgiveness is possible. Given what we've just seen, how is it that God can say to us, all of that, I will forgive you. But it's because of Jesus, isn't it? Because here's the thing, for- forgiveness is always costly. To forgive someone, to say to them, I accept your apology, I won't demand retribution for what you did, I won't hold this against you, that is costly. When you forgive, you promise not to retaliate, you forgo something. The opportunity to get restitution or, or even justice, you forgo that. You absorb the cost. You absorb the damage, the personal damage that has been done to you. Forgiveness is costly. And so it is for God. After our reading in Genesis 6, the Lord sends a flood on the earth. Maybe you you probably will know the story. And it is a judgment against the sin in our hearts and in our lives and in, in the wider world. But at the end of the flood, God promises not to destroy the world again. And he gives a sign. Genesis 9, verse 15, the Lord says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The the sign that God will never destroy the earth again because of sin is a rainbow. or, Or in the original, just a bow, as in a bow and arrow, a weapon. I think for a moment, when you look at a rainbow, what way is the rainbow facing? Looking at, it, imagine there was an archer holding that rainbow, ready to shoot an arrow from it. Which way is it facing? Well, it's away from the earth, isn't it? The bow is pointing upward. The arrow is heading towards heaven and towards God. The rainbow tells us something: for God to withhold His judgment, for God to forgive, it will cost Him dearly. In the words of John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. It cost him dearly. It's only possible because God the Father in love sent his Son and God the Son lovingly and willingly came to die in our place on the cross. And because of that, what does forgiveness mean for us? Well, it means so much, but here are a couple of things. Forgiveness means our debts are paid. Again, you'll find in your sheets, if you've got them, Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, listen to what Paul says has happened to our sin. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken away, nailing it to the cross. Verse 14, Paul is talking about our legal indebtedness. It is a record of all that we owe God, and it stands against us. I brought it in with me this morning. the biggest IOU that I have. Or oh, Laura has it as well, actually. Let's share, let's share this burden. It's a letter from Newcastle Building Society, and it tells us how much we owe for our mortgage, right down to uh, the last 14 pence. They are very particular about these things. And it's quite a large number that we owe. It also tells us how much we've paid back, and that is a very small number in comparison. But you see, in verse 14, Paul says that we all have a spiritual I owe you. On that statement is the amount that I owe God for all that he has given me, namely everything. And also on that statement is the amount that I have paid back to God, and it's not very much. I should have given him my love, my obedience, my life, and followed his laws. But in fact, I gave him nothing. I rebelled against him. Sin is rebellion. I've not done the things he's asked me to do, and I've done the things he's asked me not to do. And so the IOU stands between us and God. And the penalty for non payment you're not going to lose your house, you're going to lose eternity with God. But what does Jesus do? He pays the price. He experiences the judgment that I should have experienced for my failure to live in God's world and to honor him. That means this debt, all of it, is paid. It's gone. I'd like to rip this up, but I don't want to rip this up because I need it for my records, and it would make me nervous if I ripped it up. But do you see what I mean? It's gone. I'll throw it behind me. There you go. It's gone. The whole of it is gone. Forgiveness of sins means our debts are paid. All of them. There's a funny story about uh, the, the, the 15th century theologian Martin Luther. He was a big character and he was describing a time when he awoke in the middle of the night and he found the devil at the end of his bed. And the devil was listing all of Martin Luther's sins to him. And Luther wasn't worried. Didn't seem to be too bothered that the devil was sitting at the end of his bed. Wasn't particularly bothered that he was listing all of his sins. And Luther says, yes, old fellow, I know it all. And I know some more that you have overlooked. In fact, let me tell you what they are. He goes on to tell the devil all of his other sins that the devil hasn't spotted. Why was Luther so happy to be honest and open about the extent of his sin? Because he knows that Jesus has paid it all. All his debt has been paid on the cross. So we can confront our sin, we can be honest about it, knowing that it will be forgiven if it is taken to the Lord Jesus. Secondly, forgiveness means God's anger is gone. Now I said earlier that sin is idolatry. It is our failure to love and to worship the one true God who made us and instead love and worship something or or someone else. Just listen to how God feels about that idolatry. He says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12, it's think it's on your sheets. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror. What is so terrible that the whole of creation should shudder in horror? My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols, comes the answer. we give our hearts and our lives our worship to something other than god do you see what it is we are saying about the one true god we're saying that something else is better and greater and more worthy than the god who made us and the god who loves us no wonder creation shudders with horror tiger woods uh, was once uh, a really big deal number one golfer massive celebrity back in the uh, 2010s and 2000s. But it turned out he'd been having a number of affairs over the years. And then one morning his wife found out and her reaction was front page news. She chased Tiger Woods out of her house, picking up one of his golf clubs as she did so, swinging it at him, clearly he taught her a thing or two, and Tiger Woods dies for cover into his car where she continues to hit the car with the golf club. She's angry, furious. You see why, don't you? Angry because Tiger Woods should have been faithful to her. But more than that, because by going after these other women, Tiger Woods was effectively saying to his wife and to the world, you are not good enough for me. Not worthy enough of my complete affection and love. I need to go elsewhere. Every time, we put our hope and our trust in anything or anyone other than the God who made us, we are saying to the watching world and to God, our God is not good enough. He is not great enough. He is not big enough. He is not loving enough for us. So yes, God is angry. It's not like the anger of Ellen Woods. His anger is just, and it is a controlled anger, and it is righteous, but yes, he is angry with us for our sin. There is a hostility between us and God. But when we trust in Jesus, and we put our hope and our faith in him, and his death on the cross, listen to this promise, 1 John 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins it's an unusual word isn't it propitiation just means turning away anger turning away wrath the death of jesus turns away god's anger towards us and so for those who are trusting in the lord jesus god is no longer angry all hostility is gone that means we can enjoy complete reconciliation with god you know if you fall out with someone a housemate spouse friend you might say sorry they might say you know i forgive you that's fine But you still pick up a vibe you pick up a feeling there's a bit of atmosphere sense of anger still perhaps a bit of bitterness maybe in theory you've reconciled but in practice it doesn't feel like it not so with god When he forgives us, his anger and his wrath is completely turned away. We know nothing but his love and his grace, his mercy and his patience. His heart is for us and not against us. Come into his presence and his arms are always open. Sing to him and he smiles with pleasure. Pray to him and he is delighted to hear from us. Forgiveness means God's anger is gone. Finally, Very briefly, forgiveness means a new start. The thing with forgiveness is it doesn't just work backwards. It doesn't just resolve something that's happened in the past. It also works forward. It is redemptive. It is restorative. When, When God forgives us, there is power in what he says to us. He is saying that sin no longer controls you. Sin no longer defines you. Every time we come to the Lord and we seek and experience His forgiveness, He tells us the same again. Sin no longer controls or defines you. And that means we are free to choose the good and the true and the beautiful. To choose obedience to God and His ways. And here's the wonderful thing. Just as our sin overflowed from our hearts and into our lives, so the power, the transforming power of forgiveness overflows from our hearts and into our lives. It flows into our marriages, where increasingly we choose faithfulness and purity and self-control and self-sacrifice. It it flows into our workplaces, where more and more we choose integrity and, and honesty and kindness and wholesome talk. It flows into our communities, where we choose to love the unlovely and care for the uncared for so on and so on the transforming power of forgiveness flows out of our hearts and into our lives and it even now begins to undo the corruption that our previous sin brought about forgiveness means a new start it means our debts are paid and it means that god's anger is gone dorian gray thought the only way to deal with sin was to forget sin. But you cannot escape your conscience. Here is a better way. Confess and experience forgiveness. I'm going to finish with something that William Cooper said. We sing a number of William Cooper's hymns that he wrote back in the 17th or 18th century, rather. After, in his life, he, he had a troubled life, and after being committed to St. Alban's insane asylum, so he was put into a, a mental asylum, he picked up a Bible, and he read Romans 3, verse 25. And on reading it, he said these words. I'm going to finish here. Immediately I received the strength to believe it, and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me, I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification, and in a moment I believed and received the gospel. My eyes filled with tears, and my voice choked with emotion. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. Have you ever experienced that? If not, today you can come to the Lord Jesus, confess your sin, and know the power of sins forgiven. Moment of quiet.